Welcome to the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast, a southern harmony of bold, liberating rock, soaked through with blues, soul, and gospel. And now, your hosts for the show, Brian Jones and Jeremy Hunsaker. Uh, welcome to the very first episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. For anybody out there that's listening to this for the first time, our hats are off to you, and we hope uh, you'll continue to join us there. Uh, we're really, really excited to be talking about this music that we love, the uh, blues and Southern Rock and what it means to us, and we're going to go deep on there and, uh, you know, peel away the layers of the onion, so to speak, and get to to uh, what, uh, you know, Southern Rock and blues actually is and what it means to us, but... Uh, Tell you what, I'm not here alone. Um, it's time for me to introduce my co-host. He's coming to you from Columbia, Missouri. I forgot to mention I'm here in Fargo, North Dakota. So uh, without any further ado, here is Jeremy Hunsaker. Hello, hello. How's everybody doing out there? We're doing good. How are you doing, Jeremy? Uh, I'm doing good, man. It's, uh, you know, weird times, but, uh, you know, we're, we're all making the best of it. So Yeah. This is one good way to do exactly that. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. So um, I've been, uh, you know, we've been Facebook friends for a while, and you know, got there through a you know Black Crows page, and uh, I like the guys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's obviously the one big thing that we have in common, and other things too. But uh, I also checked out your band, Driving Wheel, and are you guys still active? Yeah, we actually played a show like two weeks ago. Um, with a new lineup, we've got, uh, of course, it's me, Ryan, and Craig still, but we've got a, a friend of ours, Cody, who's played some gigs with us before on guitar, and um, a new keyboard player, Nate, who used to play with the swag, Nate Matthews, and uh, really, uh, really excited about that. Sucks that it's coming along, you know, during this time of uh, social distancing and, you know, uh, we, the, the gig we played. We could only have 150 people allowed into a 1,000-person venue, which was kind of odd. But the socially distant booties were shaking, and uh, we had a good time. It was hot. It was humid. Um, but, you know, it's off to a good start, and we're, we're happy for uh, happy to be a part of Driving Wheel 2.0, I guess you'd say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, that, like, how did that work with, uh, with you know, where people spaced apart or... Well, yeah, the uh, the people working at the venue obviously had masks on. They had, like, um, hand sanitizer uh, stations all around. Um, no one was allowed inside the venue. There was a stage outside in the park uh, with porta potties which was at Rose Music Hall in Columbia. Um, and they were, like, uh, they had a, an outdoor bar, and uh, the servers would take your order and bring your drinks over to you. And... Um, like as far as us, uh, the bands, uh, there were three bands on the bill and we were the last band. So we brought our own microphones so that everybody was singing into their own microphones. Um, and it, you know, the, the people, like I said, they only allowed 150 people in. So they had like little tables that were spaced out throughout the park and then people could bring their own lawn chairs so that like if you had a group of people with you, they were kind of congregated together amongst their own people. And there was just like little clusters of people all over the, the park. So which was cool that we were able to do it, but it was different and it was kind of weird, you know, not gonna lie. But we were, ha we were just happy to be playing music again. 
Yeah, I hear you there. Absolutely. I'm sure they're happy to see you as well, too. Uh, what you, uh, how did uh, Driving Wheel come about? Oh, wow. Um, Brian and I met probably 15 years ago. Um, I moved to Jefferson City. And uh, we just uh, were hanging out at like an open jam, like a blues jam type thing. And, uh, we, you know, we clicked and he was playing, uh, you know, he was playing like um, blues deluxe from the first Jeff Beck group, you know. And I'm like, wow, this kid, you know, and like I say kid, I was like in my early 20s, but Ryan was in high school still. And, uh, you know, he had like really good taste and then the way he played was very tasteful, you know, and I really I, I picked up on that and I was like you know, you want to start a band. And uh, so we wanted to, you know, we wanted to start a band and we were both going to play guitar at the time, but we couldn't find a bass player and we were writing songs and we were starting to get gigs already. And so the first couple of gigs, we both switched off on bass and guitar and, um, you know, we're both lazy <laughs> and didn't want to do that anymore. And like, you know, I kind of had a little bit of an aptitude, I think, for bass. And Ryan was already just a really good guitar player. And it was obvious that he, you know, was going to, you know, take that in, into the direction that he goes in. And uh, so I, I bought a bass and, um, you know, we just kind of started playing every gig that we could. And, um, you know, we've, we've kind of quit that whole playing every gig we could thing because it just got to it really got to be a grind and a job after a while um and you know i have a i have a daughter and he's got three kids now and you know things changed over the years but the thing is we're still really good friends and we really like playing music with each other so right on right on and then like so how long have you guys been doing it started we started driving wheel in 2007 so late Late 2006, early 2007. Um, we played our first show in early 2007, like February of 07. So that's 13 years now, you know, that we've been a, been a band. I can't, man, it's a long time when you put it like that. Yeah. So, um, um, you know, we've got the one record and we've got another one that's really close to being done and um, hopefully going to write new songs with this new lineup in mind and you know, hopefully be able to kind of, um, like, I don't want to continue with what we were doing because the, as the trio, we kind of took it about as far as we were really able to at the time. Um, hopefully it's going to be like a new thing and uh, it'll have like a new energy and, and we'll be able to um, incorporate the lessons that we've learned and stuff, but uh, write new songs and, and kind of like a, do, do a driving wheel for today and not try to, you know, hang on to what it used to be, that type of thing. You always got to keep changing and evolving a little bit, is what uh, I understand uh, with being in a band. Absolutely, yeah, you get stuck otherwise. Um, and that's where it becomes a drag, if you're just literally doing the same thing and it's not progressing and it's not evolving. You know, as an artist, you don't ever want to just be punching the clock, you know, that type of thing. And I th you know, not that's what we were doing, but that's where it was headed. Yeah. So uh, for me, being from the north in North Dakota, it's, uh, you know, maybe some local musicians might not want to, you know, hear me say this, but it's very musically desolate. And it seems people just want to do play what's popular. And I'm I'm very fascinated uh, with the south. And I know, they, you know, Missouri, if it's like considered like a Midwest state, but I mean, just, you know, the, you know, the south 
in general. I mean, there's just so much history and it's obviously what this cast is going to be about, you know, like tracing those roots of music and, and, you know, blues came from the South and, and that built into rock and roll in South. Yeah. Like uh, if you think about Elvis and, you know, Muddy Waters and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy Holly, all those guys who came from, you know, Georgia and Texas and Mississippi and like rock and roll is from the South. That's why, like, I, I always love the Greg Allman quote when he said, uh, Southern rock is like saying rock rock. You know, exactly. Rock. Exactly. And That's like, you know, Missouri is definitely Midwestern. Um, it has a Midwestern mentality, like they call it Midwestern nice. Um, but it's also like kind of the borderline, you know, the Mason Dixon line runs through Missouri. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the 34th parallel and all that stuff going on. And, um, it's, it's kind of got a, it's got a Southern twang to it. Like, uh, you know, the people here talk kind of Southern. Um, and so there's like a, a bit of a Southern mentality to go with the Midwestern nice. And, uh, you know, we're like, I'm, I feel lucky to be from here and to be around uh, the type of, you know, musicians that I've been around. Columbia's got a very fertile scene, you know, and we're happy to be a part of that um, and, and have friends that are playing music in the area and stuff, too. So it's pretty cool. So I have to ask you, like, where else have you been to there in the South? I mean, have you spent any time like around the Muscle Shoals area or Nashville or? or where have you been, been around Nashville a few times um ryan's been to nashville a lot more than i have uh but i've been down there a few times i've been down there with my ex-girlfriend a few times um memphis uh definitely been memphis i've never been to muscle shoals but i i think i need to make that track uh if anything just to go hit up the record stores around there <laughs> and uh see what i can dig up you know i'm sure there's some you know uh uh, there's some really killer records that were recorded in the area that probably aren't as prevalent in the youth shops around here. Um, been to Texas. Obviously, we've made the trek to Houston a few times. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, it, it's a mentality, uh, most definitely. Um, you know, we're big barbecue fans, too, and I think that's kind of a Southern thing. Um, you know, grow, I grew up in Kansas City. Um, around you know uh, that type of that type of culture, uh, blues and barbecue uh, are just something that I grew up with, um, and uh, you know you hear all the stories about 18th and Vine and you know all this type of thing going on. Well, you don't even don't even question it. You know that's just it's just where we grew up. You know, um, and and to have that kind of in your backyard, so to speak, is is you know, not not something that I think I've taken for granted, but it's always been there, you know. Right. I want to get specifically into, like you said, the scene in Columbia, Missouri is very fertile. And when I look at uh, what's the population, a little over 100,000 or? Yeah, roughly. And that, I think, is with the students from MU. So if really you got rid of them, you're looking at, you know, 65, 70,000, something like that. And it's really amazing with a town that size that you've got such a great music scene. It... Yeah. Well, we incorporate the Jeff City area, too. So it's kind of like the Jeff City, Columbia metro area. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of good bands in Jeff City, too. We're lucky to be friends with them as well. And it's only about 30 miles away. So, you know, uh, but yeah, you're right. There's there's a hugely fertile scene here. 
um, so many great bands that I, you know, I don't even want to start reeling them off because invariably I'll forget somebody and, and make somebody. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, right. So we've a lot of friends and a lot of really good musicians that, you know, not only uh, do I learn from and are inspired by, but like, you know, I look, the cool thing about it before all this happened was I was able to kind of get out and go see other people and go see their shows and stuff like that. And um, which hadn't happened a whole lot before. Usually the only time you get to see another act is when you're playing a show with them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, kind of slowing things down, we were able to get out more. And like I said, it's just a shame that we're starting to really kind of get the band up and going again as this all you know the quarantine or the shutdown or the coronavirus and all that kind of kicked off so a bit of a shame but uh, you know this one one band that i'm uh, that i've checked out just from uh, you mentioning them is uh don't mind dying is i have the name correct yeah. there yeah absolutely yeah i'm really i'm really good friends with their bass player uh austin we're we're like you know we're bass brothers and his brother chase is actually a really fantastic uh, like ukulele player that I hang out with quite often and um, yeah Don't Mind Dying are just fantastic um, Jason Caton on guitar uh, fantastic talent uh, great person really really nice soft-spoken guy and uh, their lead singer BC uh, Brian Craig is uh, he's he's uh, <laughs> he you know I, there can't be a doppelganger for that guy. There only has to be one of him, and, and he's a sweetheart. And uh, we, we love Don't Mind Dying as people and as musicians. They're just a fantastic band, and, and they put on a great show. And we've played several shows with them over the years, too. So if you ever get a chance to get a driving wheel Don't Mind Dying show, you're probably going to have a good time, and we're probably going to sell the place out of booze. <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, um, that's that's just like I said, it's so awesome that uh, you guys have that scene there. And and for people listening, check out "Don't Mind Dying." Check out uh, "Driving Wheel" as well. Now I want to get more into uh, our mutual love of the Black Crows. How long have you been into them? When did that start for you? First show? Like a lot of people, I'm sure it started. You know, I saw "Hard to Handle" on MTV when I was a kid. You know, I was. I was probably in fifth grade and, um, you know, it resonated with me kind of the same way Guns N' Roses did in that it was very unpretentious and these weren't guys with poofy hair, you know, and, and like, I knew I was familiar with the hook of that song, but I didn't, you know, full, I don't think I fully realized that it was a notice writing song at the time, but like I bugged my dad for the tape and I got the tape for Christmas in 1990 and I just wore that thing out, um, on my Walkman and in my mom's car and anywhere I could stick that tape. And the cool thing about it was it wasn't like, you know, some of the other music that I was trying to play where my parents were like, ah, shut that off. You know, they let it fly because it's a really good album. And um, I got Southern Harmony the day it came out. Uh, and this time it was on CD. And that record just blew my mind. I think I was like 12 when it came out. And like, I was stunned at, at just this new world that it really was to me um the amp hum you know the riffs uh, the start and stop of sometimes salvation um and i was just really getting into playing music uh for real at that time like i was in fifth grade or sixth grade whatever i don't know how old i was when i was 12 but i was in the school band and i was playing drums and i was putting rhythms together steve gorman was a big influence on me in that 
but um like here in the amp hum at the start of sting me and the strings just rich raking the strings just even that was a huge influence so everything about it was an influence to me and my mom took me to my first show for my I want to say it was my 13th birthday in 1993 at the St. Joe Civic Center. And, um, and you know, the High as the Moon tour, that, that, that cemented it. You know, they played title song, uh, which I didn't know what it was at that time. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, it blew, it blew my very impressionable mind. And I'm sure there's still little bits of my face that are left on the floor. <laughs> of the uh the, the saint joe civic arena you know and so i saw him again in 95 uh, on the amorica tour and in 96 was the first time i was old enough to do back-to-back shows um i saw him in st louis at the american theater on october 1st of 96 and i saw him the next night in um kansas city and they were just so different shows you know that i made up my mind i had to see that band as many times as i could uh, so I saw a few further shows the next year, which kind of coincided with me getting really into the Grateful Dead and all that kind of thing. So it was really a good pairing for me to see the Crows and to see Rat Dog and to see uh, Mickey Hart and Bruce Hornsby and uh, Hot Tuna, you know, and like uh, it, it really uh, I saw so many shows that year too, uh, not just further shows, not just Crow shows. Um, Horde Fest was huge for me that year with uh, Neil Young, Crazy Horse, Primus, Modesky, Martin and Wood, Big Head, Todd and the Monsters. I saw uh, the Leonard Skinner tribute type band with Paul Rogers, um, you know, uh, which had actually had Leon and Billy still with them and alive. Um, and uh, Charlie Daniels band and uh, just so many shows that, cause you know, I was like 17 at that point, you know, so I could go with my friends or we could just go do whatever. And, uh, we, uh, we went and saw so many shows in the summer of 97 that, you know, that really, uh, was, was a really good time in my life. And the crows were a huge part of that. And when Mark and Johnny left, I was kind of put off a little bit but not so much that I wouldn't go see the shows. I just didn't go see as many until uh, Listen Massive in 2001 on the Lions tour when they started mixing the set lists up again. And uh, I was in college at that point and, and uh, you know, really respected oddly as a player. And, um, you know, they kind of shut that down. I went and seen a few, few New Earth Mud shows, which were fantastic. The first uh, iteration of New Earth, New Earth Mud with Paul Stacy uh, and Jeremy Stacy, just an amazing band that really didn't get its due. Um, I prefer that maybe over CRB even. Um, but uh, whenever the whenever they got back together, when the Crows got back together in '05 with Mark and Eddie and Sven and Steve came back. Then it was on, and I saw two of the Petty shows, two of the Tom Petty openers, again, St. Louis and Kansas City. Um, they came back that fall um, to Kansas City, and I actually sat through that show with a broken foot. I didn't care. I was going, um, and it was amazing. And then when I saw them in Des Moines the next spring, in the spring of 06, I knew something was kind of off. You know, you could tell. The writing was on the wall. You could see it in Mark's body language and in his face. He wasn't happy to be there. 
Um, and that, at that moment, I made up my mind again. Well, I got to see as many shows as I can before this whole thing blows up. And, you know, I did uh, a few shows on the summer run uh, with Drive-By Truckers and Robert Randolph, St. Louis, um, uh, Red Rocks, the Boulder uh, invite show. Um, and then, of course, we know what happened after that. But, um, you know, I actually met my future ex-wife <laughs> at the Red Rocks show um at a gathering before the red rock show we wound up hooking up the next year uh in chicago because it was black crows and Humphreys mcgee uh for free at taste of chicago and uh, my daughter was conceived after uh chicago crow show in late 07 at the riv so in all actuality without the black crows my daughter wouldn't even exist you know they played like that integral a role in my life you know they're, they're huge um, not only musically, but, you know, lyrically and, and, uh, and, and a lot of things, you know, so I have the most utmost respect for the Black Crows and, and what they've done. Always very, very fascinating to hear uh, other people's experience. You know, a couple of things I can take out of that. It's like, I didn't know that they played title song that early. That was during the High as a Moon tour. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally awesome. Awesome. Exit was also making set lists. Of Correct. Yep. 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 I've seen that as well. Now we were talking about uh, we were talking about the uh, the spring, spring of 06. and yep. you said you could tell by Mark's body language, you know, like the, there's something that was off, and it, it's it's fascinating as fans that you you know you have that kind of intuitive vibe or intuitive thought about that. Yeah, and I didn't have anything really concrete to go on at that time other than, you know, he's not smiling a whole lot. He looks really tired, looks not very happy to be there. Um, and we had all heard about, you know, what had happened at the um, at the Hard Rock gig in, in Florida in January, too. So I didn't, you know, I didn't really put two and two together, you know, at that time. I just, you know, again, you said the word intuitive. I was very intuitive in knowing that I should see as many shows as possible while that lineup was together and um you know later on in that summer tour uh when they were playing the sheds with the truckers and robert randolph um mark was traveling separately with the from the band uh, him and his wife had rented like a uh, a charger a dodge charger and they were kind of following the bus you know uh so he wasn't even riding on the bus anymore and um you know, so, and that's public knowledge, so I don't feel bad, like, maybe of sharing that, but, like, Mark's story is Mark's story to tell about why he left, but, I mean, you know, sometimes there are things that are more important than playing in a big rock and roll band, and, um, you know, he gained a lot of respect from me um, for for making that decision, even though on a personal level, you know, I want what I want. And I wanted him to stay in that band and I wanted Eddie to stay in the band too. Um, but it was not to be. When you were talking about the event down in Florida, is that when Ed uh, had a stomach issue? And Well, we can call it a stomach issue. <laughs> yeah, or that, sure. was the, that was the, 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 the stage story. But he missed a gig or couldn't play a gig or... Yeah, I mean, and again, and so Ed's dead, and Ed died the way he died, and like, um, 
I, I want to preface this with saying Ed was like, you've heard all the stories. Gorman's told the stories. I have my own personal interactions with Ed. The guy's nothing but a sweetheart. Fucking love Ed. Amazing person. Funny, witty, um, great stories, just really good vibes. Um, but Ed, Ed had his issues, and I, um, you know, I guess some of those issues had crept up uh, at the Hard Rock show. And Ed was uh, escorted out of the venue by security. Um, and was it was basically either Ed has to leave the venue or the Black Crows aren't going to be able to pay and they're going to play and they're going to forfeit their pay for the gig. So he kind of, I guess, put the whole operation in jeopardy uh, with that. And he was given the ultimatum to clean it up or, he, you know, he'd leave at the end of the uh, summer tour. And he, he chose not to... Uh, he chose not to be in the band anymore, basically. Even though the way Gorman put it is the Black Crows turned their back on Ed. You know, Ed kind of, it was like when Mark left in 97. You know, Ed could have made that decision to stay in the band if he had wanted to. But I also understand how it could be seen as being hypocritical. It's like people are, you know, you're not doing the same kind of drugs I am type of situation, you know. Mm -hmm. So it all, you know, I don't know. Um, I guess I get both sides of the story. I understand both sides of it. You know. And you say uh, you know, all those stories are in, in Gorman's book, you know, so, you know, in some ways I feel like this must be like speculation, but Steve's put it out there. But like you say, we want to remember, you know, like everything that was great about Ed, you know, and he sure was one hell of a player. Now I got to talk about like how I got into the Crows, if you may. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I used to be like just straight up metalhead. Like when I was a teenager, I loved Rat, you know. And then I think the first thing that kind of got me s stepping in a different kind of direction was when Tesla came out, you know, mm -hmm. Mechanical Resonance. And then, of course, you know, Appetite to, for Destruction would come out, you know, Cinderella's second album, uh, uh, Long Cold Winter. That was a lot more rock than it was, you know, metal. And, when Shake Your Moneymaker came out, I kind of was like, well, these guys are just like the Georgia satellites. You know, I just, I didn't get it then. I got a couple good friends that I've, you know, you know, kind of met through the party scenes and whatnot, but they've remained close friends and, and, and whatnot. But I got a older friend of mine, my friend Kev, and he's totally into the Stones and the Dead. He grew up in Southern California and he went to a lot of Dead shows starting in 75 and he was even more so into the stones. And I, you know, I think what he said, he is when Southern harmony came out, he goes, you got to listen to this because it's kind of got a flow like exile and main street. And I just like totally, you know, totally got in, got into the crows that way. Like I just became obsessed. Like you say, the Southern harmony and musical companion changed my life. Absolutely. You know, um, it's like, what can you say? You know, it's just like, I, that's my desert Island album. And you know, the one thing I got to say is uh, I have a huge regret. I had an opportunity to go to opening night as a, a for the high as a moon tour in Minneapolis. And I didn't go. So I don't know. I must've not been into them as much as I should have, because shortly after that, I don't care if you would have told me on a, skateboard and a chain behind a car or stuff me in the trunk there was nothing that was going to stop me but yeah. i did uh 
somewhat redeem myself by being at opening opening night of uh, the Amorica or bus tour, March 3rd, 1995 at the Roy Wilkins Auditorium in St. Paul. You know, and that was the only, that the, the first time, you know, as long as Mark and Ed were still in the band, or before Mark and Johnny, excuse me, before they left in 97, you know, I saw those guys four times, but um, that uh, opening night of the Morica tour is, you know, the only show of their own that I saw because I saw them on Horde in 95 in Somerset, Wisconsin. I saw them in uh, Minneapolis puts on a free show every year back at that time. I can't remember what radio station it was, whatever, but that was in the summer of 96. And there was a huge free show downtown. And you can find that, you can find video of that show on YouTube. And Chris wasn't real happy with the crowd. There was a lot of crowd surfing and he's stopping the set every couple, two or three songs. And, but uh, that was one hell of a show. And then I also saw them on the further festival in 97 july i believe 97 at uh also at somerset most of my shows have been in minneapolis area or in wisconsin i did see them on the brotherly love tour in chicago in may of 01 croasis yes yes so uh, we were you know mentioning earlier kind of how it was for a lot of crows fans when when uh when uh, Mark and Johnny left and, you know, Mark or Mark fucking Ford, as he's known to all of us is kind of like, you know, everyone else gets compared to him. So like, what's your take on that? Like what do you, do you see in oddly freed and Luther Dickinson? I mean, I, I was totally fine with those guys being in the band. I was aware of cry. I love before the crows. I thought, Hey, this makes perfect sense. I loved Luther and the crows. I did for me, you know, uh, coming from where, from where he comes from and his dad being, you know, a producer working with, you know, Bob Dylan and the Stones and in the Muscle Shoals area in Memphis. And it just, uh, like uh, Gorman put in his book, like uh, Luther was rock royalty to those guys. So I, I just thought that would, that made sense to me. But, like, what what's your take on that? Like, you know, everybody, certain nope. folks. Nope, nope, but. Nobody's gonna be Mark Ford in the Black Crows. Um, there's like a chemistry thing. It's it's alchemy when he's in the band, and especially when it was Mark and Ed. And I don't. Yeah, there wasn't it ever. Um, there was just a small time where Mark and Rob Cloris were in the band together, and they never played any shows even. But um, Mark and Ed sparked off of each other in such a way that I mean, it can't be duplicated. There's a further show uh, from Toronto. We just passed the anniversary of it, uh, July 9th, 1997. And there's a few different versions of the recording floating around. One of them is a digital soundboard that doesn't have Rich in the mix. Because Rich is always so loud, you know, um, that this actually, you know, it's like a, a monitor feed. And you didn't need any Rich in the monitors because there was a whole heap of Rich all over the stage. Um and so you can really hear Mark and Ed kind of finishing each other's sentences. Um, and that lineup was special. Um, I love Sven. Sven's a great bass player. As a bassist myself, I have a lot of respect for Sven. Um, and I love Johnny, too. But Mark and Ed really made it. 
Uh, that being said, I, like you said, with Oddly, I loved Oddly. I loved the way he played. I think he was kind of hamstrung, you know, because at that time, Rich was playing more leads. Um, and the set lists didn't really, weren't really tailored to take full advantage of Oddly. And I think he was underutilized in the Black Crows. Um, I really, really, really liked Paul Stacy. Um he was my kind of my number two. If Mark couldn't do it, then I was I thought Paul Stacy was great. Paul and Rob Flores were, I mean, it wasn't like having Mark and Ed in the band, but it was still really, really good. There was some really great set lists, great musicianship, great musical conversations going on on stage. Some really good jams. Uh, they still really jammed really well. Um, I like Jackie Green in the band. I know Jackie gets kind of short shrift from a lot of people. I thought he was really, um, like he had more of the Mark Ford vibe in his playing than say Luther did. Like Luther was more of a roots rock guy, which, you know, for what they were recording, the new songs on Warpaint before the frost was kind of what they, you know, that's what they needed. And there was nothing to compare it to. So it was great. You know, Adam was great in that context. Some of the older stuff, I was so used to and in love with the way Mark and Ed played that it seemed off the way, you know, like stare at cold, you know, mm -hmm. it's a Jeff C song. Mark Ford made that his own slide parts. Um, and Luther being the gifted slide guitar player, I think kind of had a tendency to maybe overplay on that type of stuff. That being said, the Luther and Adam lineup, really shown on the acoustic type stuff, the three snakes stuff. They did a real good job of, um, I think oddly, if you've ever heard oddly play girl from a pawn shop with his pedal steel kind of licks. Oh my, uh, I got a killer version of that in Kansas city in one that just jaw dropping on the floor. Good. Um, so they were always capable of really good moments, no matter who was in the band. It just seemed that, you know, um, it kind of evolved into something else, which I was still a fan of. I really liked Before the Frost and Until the Freeze. Uh, in the vinyl format, that track listing makes a lot of sense, and it's a really good album and a great listen. Uh, Crowology is really good. Um, you know, and it's a shame that they couldn't kind of, if they couldn't keep that lineup together, they couldn't keep some semblance of it together, like with Jackie Green. Or when Benji Shanks was going, you know, with Blackberry Smoke now, uh, he was rumored to be uh, up for the gig before they gave it to Luther. Um, I would have been really interested to hear what he would have done uh, in that context. Um, but, you know, not having anybody in the band now, you know, and I know Joel Robinow is a great piano player, great keyboard player. I love the Once in Future band. So him and Raj, I, I, I get it. I understand. Uh, Tim LaFerbe on bass is is a you know highly sought after bassist, and Isaiah Mitchell is a fantastic guitar player from Merkless. Um, but that's not the Black Crows to me. You know, that's not the band that I grew up with. And and to to disregard Gorman's contributions and to disregard Mark Ford's contributions, um, you know, in a perfect world. If Gorman didn't want to come back, that's fine. They should have just went with the Magpie Salute lineup, you know. But I also understand that, you know, even without Chris involved, 
there were a lot of issues towards the end of Magpie Salute that were kind of the same issues that were prevalent in the latter days of 97 and 06, you know, with the crows that kind of crept up and uh, everybody was burnt. So, like, again, I kind of get both sides of it. But as a fan, you know, I want Mark Ford in that band, period, always. That's a, uh, okay to say that, you know, uh, a lot of people are, you know, having issues with this new lineup, you know, and in one way I can say, you know, somebody's a Black Crows fan if they say they are, but, you know, it's, it's, it's tough for me. Like I'm on the fence on whether I'll see that show or not. If, if, you know, shows ever come back around, hopefully. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, I, my, my apprehension is I'd be going more as a critic than a fan. So you know, I did see, I saw them with Jackie, you know, in, in 2013. That was my my 18th show, which is a lot less than a lot of people. But, you know, like I said, you know, outside of Mark, what's that? A lot more than others. I mean, what other band have you seen 18 times? Uh, that'd be no other band. I'm at, I'm at four on Blackberry Smoke, so uh, only another, like, 15 to go, and they'll be in the first place. But... Yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, it's Mark Ford, it's it's Luther. I didn't mind Jackie so much, but, uh, you know, as of now, you know, I'm not super crazy about the new lineup. Sure. Well, I mean, I kind of approach it, like, I learned a lot when uh, with, the, with the Jackie Green lineup in 2013. I went uh, to a show in Springfield, Missouri, and I actually taped it. But uh, I took my dad to a Black Crows show, and uh, my girlfriend uh, at the time, went with us and and a couple of friends and a buddy of mine brought his niece and it was more like a family kind of outing and we just went and had a really good time and you know um it didn't have to be the most mind-blowing black crow show with the best jams or the deepest set list cuts because everybody had a really good time and it was a really good vibe and really good energy so i think with a new lineup you know if somebody's going to go to the show they should probably keep an open mind and you know, you know what they're going to play. It's going to be Shake Your Moneymaker. It's going to be the hits, but it's going to be a good band playing good songs. And you can go and you can have a few beers or whatever your thing is and uh, just enjoy the evening and uh, listen to some live music. And it doesn't really have to be any deeper than that. You know, if you want the if you want the full on experience now, like I said, it's probably best to just go see Blackberry Smoke. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. Yeah. Yeah, they're fantastic band my uh my best friend from kansas city was married to the guitar player's cousin and uh, so i've been seeing those guys since they were playing for like 50 people at knuckleheads and uh it's just been great to see them kind of take off and and do what they're doing now you know for sure for sure and especially since they've uh, they've had their success without you know the aid of fm radio or there's no MTV and, and reading interviews with those guys, they don't, they're like, you know, our fans wouldn't care what's on FM radio. So it's, it's really wonderful to see, you know, what they've been able to do, just building it themselves. Completely independent. I mean, Brit still packs the merch when he's home, like, you know, uh, when they get orders in for t-shirts and records, I mean, he goes to the warehouse and, and packs that up and, you know, drops it off at UPS or whatever, you know, like they're that involved with it still to this day, which is, which is a good way to be, you know, and, and for the Crows tie in, uh, Britt and Richard Turner used to work for the Black Crows uh, during like three snake sessions at Chateau de la Croix. 
And uh, Chris Robinson actually named that band. I've I've heard the story. Uh, when Gorman, when he was working on his book, he uh, had a podcast, like three or four episodes with his cousin and one of their producers called Tripod Tripod. And I he had uh, he'd have uh, listeners send in questions, and I actually I emailed a question that he answered on the on the cast about you know, some of the back history of the crows and Blackberry smoke and the camaraderie and all that. And he said that, that, uh, Britt and Richard used to run a rehearsal studio in Atlanta. And I think it was as far back as the Mr. Crow's garden days. And they re the crows rehearsed or Mr. Crow's garden at that time, if I'm understanding correctly, you know, uh, rehearsed in that rehearsal studio that Britt and Richard, uh, ran. So, those guys go way back. Absolutely. There's, uh, I guess it was on the State of America podcast with Britt where he talked about going to the clubs and seeing Mr. Crow's Garden, you know, uh, back when they were they were all just little baby Blackberry Smokes in Mr. Crow's Garden. <laughs> so. so do you know specifically what Britt Richard did uh, recording Three Snakes? I think it was, uh, they did some video uh, stuff they like uh, took video footage and it was like a general uh, like roadieing um, uh, and you know going and picking things up for various members who mm-hmm. you know uh, there there was probably multifaceted aspects of what they were doing but they were running video and uh, general uh, gophering and, and uh, roadieing type stuff you know things that need to be done when you're making a record right we're kind of going in and out of Crow's uh, talk here at Blackberry Smoke Talk. I want to get back to Crow's real quick. Do you, how many shows have you seen? Over 100. That's amazing. Um, I really, in 05, 06, 07, probably through the end is really when I picked up. Like, it was probably around 20 um, when Mark and Ed left. And, like, I saw... Um, one of the Lenny Kravitz shows, um, I had an eight o'clock uh, psychology final the next morning. So I left during Leonard Kravitz's set. Um, and uh, let's see, so that was 99. And I saw two of the Jimmy Page Black Crow shows. And um, 01, I saw like three of the, or I saw one of the uh, Croasis, uh, you know, brotherly love shows. And then I saw two of the list of massive shows. Uh, so that's what, like probably 25, 30-ish, right around there. Then in 05, I saw three shows. 06, I saw five. Um, 07, three or four, five, probably five more. It averaged around five to seven a year through the end. Uh, it was at Mud Island. 2010, those uh, Sega Night to the Bad Guy shows, I saw three of those. Um, every time they came through St. Louis, Kansas City, um, Des Moines, Denver, seen a few Red Rock shows. Um, yeah, so over a hundred. And if you counted solo shows, it'd probably be close to 150. Seen Chris, uh, solo with the mud and with CRB quite a few times. Rich's solo shows were awesome. Um, I only saw Magpie Salute once, which was here in Columbia. I was going through a weird time in my life. Um, I just, I'd just broken up with my ex, or she'd just broken up with me, let me say. And uh, 
you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really up to traveling, um, for shows. Um, but, uh, the one magpie show that I saw was phenomenal. Um, fear years, they just killed it. Um, the great mixture of the solo songs, crows songs and magpie salute songs, um, with the three singers, you know, uh, Rich and Mark and John Hogue. And then you had the girls up front. Um, it was just such a really stellar vibe and such a cool vibe, which was how I really felt like they should have approached the Crows, you know, from, you know, 506 on with mixing in the solo songs and having the girls be more of a part of things up front, you know, um, kind of like the dead model, how the dead mm-hmm. do you, you got, Bob Weir solo songs and Jerry Garcia solo songs are mixed into the set list. And, you know, you literally never knew what you were going to get. Um, think, you know, the Crows have always shot themselves in the foot. They've been a great band at doing that. Um, and uh, the, that never changed. <laughs> they, they, had, they had a stellar opportunity. It's like whenever they would go play festivals and they'd be in, out in front of all the, you know, all the, the like dead fans and the hippie kids and stuff and they would play a greatest hits festival set list and i'm like why what are you doing mm-hmm. you know the, you you have a prime opportunity here to spread the gospel and you're like reinforcing a stereotype of what people think about you but you know chris always wrote the set list and he always knew best just asking mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, when you talk about, you know, how we can tell, you know, what's going on on stage. When I saw him in the fall of 05, the Orpheum Theater in Minneapolis, my buddy said to me, you know, you can really tell, like, they're really happy to be back together and playing, you know. And then obviously, when you read Gorman's book, you know, at some point that went south and all the old things crept back in. But the, I think that a lot of people mentioned that that tour when Gorman came back in 05 and those, those uh, you know, doing the two sets you know some of the i watched one part of one the other night as like something from las vegas i believe uh and and just amazing opening up with halfway to everywhere and chris is singing his ass off and they were just fabulous yeah and they were playing all kinds of cool covers and great jams and um the vibe was you could feel it and you could see it they were um and even rich says that that was the band, you know, that was right. Right. I I think the summer of six shows, I don't want to say they're better, but man, musically they were on top, but it seems like the more, the more tension and the more, you know, dysfunction were in that band, the better the music was, which is a shame, you know? So I have to ask you, Jeremy, were you, did you tape any shows for yeah. the Crows? Yeah, I got into taping, uh, went to a show in Salina, Kansas, uh, and I want to say 2008 or 2009, you know, War Pain era, and uh, just a ripping version of Dirty Hair Halo. I was right up front at this cool theater called the Stiefel Theater in Salina, Kansas, and um you know, just assumed like everything else at the time, the band was taping the show. Like, even though Boa wasn't there, um, the the recorder malfunctioned. 
there was an issue with the recorder and like uh, the soundboard recording came out just way too distorted and way too hot. And there was just no recording of that show. And I'm like, shit, I need to, you know, get a deck and some mics and start taping shows myself. So I started taping in early 2010. Um, and the first Crows shows I taped, you know, I started taping, the, that would have been in 2010. The first shows I started taping were in 2011. So I didn't get a chance to record any Crows shows until 2013. So I did St. Louis. I uh, did Sunday night at the Ryman with all the special guests, the acoustic show. And uh, I did the Springfield, Missouri um, in uh, late 2013. And those were the three Black Crow shows that I got to tape myself. So. Well, that's excellent. That's excellent. You know, uh, you know, I know we'll, uh, for the listeners out there, we'll, uh, We'll be getting into more and more talk about Blackberry Smoke and Grateful Dead and everybody else. And this has just Wrong. been this has been <laughs> an awesome way to uh, to uh, introduce the podcast. And uh, I got to give a shout out though, like and you mentioned the State of America earlier. Uh, if you guys get a chance, you got to check out the State of America podcast uh, with David and Ian. You know, if it wasn't for those guys, I wouldn't be we wouldn't be doing this. They've totally inspired me and uh i've uh you know kind of had david on the on the <laughs> on the bat phone on the messenger answering a lot of questions about equipment and whatnot so i gotta we gotta thank those guys and i really appreciate that and uh thank you jeremy for helping me helping us introduce this episode and coming up in the future we're gonna have more guests and you guys should stick around it's gonna be a great show so any closing thoughts, Jeremy? Hey, again, special thanks to David and Ian, who are great guys, and we, we enjoy uh, their podcast, too. And, and uh, you know, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. Had a good time. Forward to many more. Awesome. And uh, as my hat's off to you, if you don't mind, uh, we'll play us out with uh, the full version of 30 Miles to Houston, as you heard the beginning in the introduction. So thank you everybody for joining the very first episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast. We'll see y'all later.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.